Hello and welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm joined by Clark Rundell. And we're going to be talking about all different types of music. So, two things to plug up front today. Firstly, uh, download the new album Patterns Various by Samuel Sharp. I headed to his uh, online album launch on Friday uh, along with several hundred other people. And it's absolutely fantastic. Um, it's just straight ahead alto playing with all sorts of clever effects and it's just hugely enjoyable. And if you're already online, you should also head to YouTube and watch Shree uh, playing a gig last night from Ronnie Scott's with Dennis Rollins on trombone. Uh, and don't forget, Shree's heading to Watford next year so you can get a little taster of the action. Oh, and also don't forget to donate after watching. So today I am joined by Professor of Conducting at the Royal Northern College of Music, the outstanding and delightful Clark Rundell, trombonist, musician, advocate for young players, including me when I was but a teenage infant, and perhaps most famously, conductor of great works, even the really hard ones. Clark, hello, how are you? I'm great, Chris. It's, 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 that's the best introduction I think I've ever had in my life, so thank you for that. <laughs> oh, how is lockdown treating you? Um, well, frustrated. Uh, you know, the, the gigs that I, I didn't achieve, Pat Metheny at the Philharmonie Paris, uh, working more with Esperanza Spalding and Wayne Shorter. I, I should tell you a little bit about that as we go on. They're writing an opera together and we should have been workshopping it in L.A. And in fact, I'm Zooming uh, Wayne and Esperanza tonight. Um, what else hasn't happened? Should have been doing more work with Brad Meldow and his fantastic piano concerto uh, in Tokyo, which got cancelled Um what else should have been working with Pablo Ziegler? Wow! And uh, that's been postponed in Lyon. With a bit of luck, uh, this time next week I'll be conducting some Piazzolla in Liège in Belgium, which would be great because that will be the first bit of conducting I will have done since that fantastic project I did with Abel Salacha, who is who's such a fantastic artist. And what a thrill it was to work with him and his friends, uh, Siddiqui and Alan. Uh, but how weird it was to to play to a completely empty Royal Festival Hall. You know, you, we finished this music that was thrilling, thrilling. People would have been on their feet. And and you just, you know, of course, the orchestra were all high as a kite, you know, to be uh, amongst genius. And and you just wanted to share it with everybody. But I think it has been watched quite widely. And, and, and you have to be thankful for that, that, you know, it at least has got out there and people have seen him do what he does uh, that nobody else does. And he is, he is something else, isn't he? He's extraordinary. Clark, you've just dropped more names and introduced my brain to more different things that I want to follow up than anyone has ever said in their opening gambit. So let's start <laughs> at the end with the Abel Salatroiki. So for those who don't know Abel, he's a fabulous, and I don't think that does the, it does him justice, but, as a starter, a fabulous and very, very gifted uh, cello player, composer. And he comfortably sits in that ground where he can play classically, uh, reference jazz, but reference a whole world of music in that true sense of a global um, musician. Um, and if you go onto the BBC iPlayer, if you're in the UK, you can download and watch right now the most fantastic hour and a half, I think it is, concert that was put on as part of the EFG London Jazz Festival back in November. And one Clark Rundell is conducting, uh, and he's got the BBC Concert Orchestra under his baton, 
And then he's got Abel's trio up front, uh, and they just play some wonderful music, including this suite uh, by Barak Shmuel. And it's this journey from uh, uh, Northern Africa right down through to South Africa, and it takes all these reference points. So I'm going to ask you about that, Clark. How on earth do you conduct uh, an orchestra whilst finding the time for the freedom of the jazz musicians out front, who presumably are battling against control? That's a brilliantly put question, because um, control is, is an important part of what you do as a conductor. You know, your your job is not to crash the ship into the into the into the hoardings. <laughs> um, but I've known Abel for a very long time, so he studied at the Royal Northern, and I'd even I think I've done either the Elgar or the Dvorak concerto with him, which of course he plays incredibly well. Mm. But he has really found his own extraordinary individuality unique voice is a kind of banal way of putting it in that he can just do things that other people cannot do um you know and his ability to incorporate them <clears throat> into the language of the cello remarkably about a, a month before the gig that we did at the festival hall, royal festival hall abel and i did a recording with the orchestra of opera north where he did he lives outside sheffield now and he's an artist in association with opera north and he did a, there's a you'll, you'll know the technical term for it, but it's a, it's a sort of walking tour you can do with your iPhone. It's a yeah. walking tour yeah. around Leeds and you can log into the music for the Corn Exchange as he's written for the Corn Exchange. And, and that was such a fascinating project to work on with him, um, <clears throat> brilliantly written by him. And he had some very, very able help uh, from a, a brilliant composer orchestrator whose name yeah. escapes me now and hopefully you can name check in later because he was absolutely fantastic um but what was so interesting about that is you know abel's abel's a cellist and he's working with the string players of opera north who are absolutely fantastic and he's just demonstrating these sounds that they've never heard come out of an instrument a cello and and you know they know full well that he can jolly well play that instrument and they're, you know, trying to mimic the, the vibe and the style. And, and yes, <clears throat> they're playing the right rhythms, but it doesn't sound like the way he plays them. Or uh, we would work with the percussion section of that orchestra, fantastic players, who just, you know, nailed these rhythms to the wall the first time they played them, but they didn't sound the way Siddiqui played them. So that becomes such an interesting thing. And, it, it be, you know, it's like what we do in, in all of music if you're playing... George Gershwin, you play it differently than you would play uh, Herbie Hancock. You know, it's just, it's a different language. And, and learning for us uh, to, to, to try to speak with as, as, most, as convincing an African accent as we possibly can, right, Abel's, right. Abel's notes, was a wonderful journey. And I have to say, to a man and a woman, uh, the BBC Concert Orchestra and the Orchestra of Opera North were as so open to to meeting him on his ground in their house, you know, was, yeah. was a wonderful thing to witness. It was just joyful from beginning to end. It absolutely had its challenges, you know, keeping the thing together, you know, when they're, especially, I tell you, one of the most challenging things was the social distancing because you, you just couldn't, you couldn't hear, you know, there would be people 30 meters away who should have been 10 meters away. And, and that just affects your ability to immediately hear the sound of a chora or a bass drum or a bass or a cello or whatever, the sort of chamber music immediacy reaction uh, that 
all great players have. They, you know, they live and, and die by the quality of their ear. Uh, that was just compromised by distance. So that, that proved to be a bit of a challenge and meant that sometimes perhaps in terms of giving gestural signals with the hands uh, and, the, and even you know, sort of mm. the odd nod here and there to help the players, they needed a bit more yellow brick road nursing than they would have needed normally. Thankfully, the music was incredibly well written. It gave them exactly the freedom they need needed. It, and it was in many ways not unlike conducting a good big band chart of Bob Mincer or Bob Brookmeyer or Maria Schneider. You know, it, 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 it's, it, it had a very similar language. Barrack's piece was brilliantly written. <clears throat> and the arrangements that Ian Gardner did of, of, uh, that finished the concert of, uh, of Abel's own music was, were, were terrific. And so they just worked brilliantly. You know, I always tell whether something's meaning something to me by the hairs on my arms. And they literally, after the first couple of pieces, they never sort of went back into repose. They were just like on edge for this. It's the most unbelievable energy. And I could see it in your face. I could see it in his face, but I could see it in the whole of that orchestra, but really brought alive by that music. But I want to ask you a bit more about the, the, the control thing, more outside of Abel's gig. So the con tradition of conducting goes back, what, I don't know, even early 18th century. Oh, Lully is technically the first one. He used to bang his on the downbeats and, and, and caught his foot and died of gangrene. As, well, these are the dangers, the perils, right? But you go through, like, I don't know, Handel at his harpsichord and conducting from his seat, and then through, I don't know, Berlioz sort of probably made it an art form. I, don't, I mean, I don't know, I'm giving you a lecture on... <laughs> This is the wrong way round. But you, you, you know what I mean? It's like, this is a relatively recent thing because you're trying to corral these huge numbers. Um, but jazz, in my experience, once you're off a chart, is trying to do everything it can to bend time, to really listen to others and flow. And that's incumbent responsibility on everyone. There isn't that focal point. But of course, the big band balks that tradition, um, and as does a lot of these pieces of music where you are making almost the impossible work. So I watched, um, and I recommend everyone does this on YouTube, you can watch Pegasus, um, a Wayne Shorter uh, piece being conducted by Clark, I think it was at the Umbria Jazz Festival in, uh, in, it, in Perugia. Awful places you have to go, Clark. It's a real choice. Um, but I, I guess what I want to know, and I should imagine what others would want to know, is apart from the huge responsibility of bringing these pieces of music to life, how do you allow the necessary space for the improviser, the natural improviser, to do his or her thing whilst keeping, you know, 50 plus others in check? Uh, it's very similar to running a big band in a lot of ways. It's just much bigger band. So if the charts are well-written, you can bring people in and out uh, with relative ease. I mean, that Pegasus, for example, is incredibly through-composed. There were some bits, I can't remember if it was that or Lotus or one of the others, where there are, are points where, you know, Danilo and Brian Blades and John and Wayne just go into Mars and, and beyond. And then John is very good at bringing me back to Earth. <laughs> Clark, Clark, we're here now. And I'm like, thanks, John. That's really great. It, it's interesting. It's wonderful to talk about this with you because 
I'm in the middle of doing a, a European-funded project in partnership with my colleague Mark Heron at the RNCM, uh-huh. trying to put a lot of this information online so that people can learn if they want to work with you know a jazz band or a pop band or improvising musicians or whoever, um, what what our role as as conductors is in this, and and it goes back a little bit. Uh, to, to learning to speak the language and learning to articulate the way that they articulate so that you don't sound too square, you know, mm. and how, you know, what does, what does a staccato mean? What, what things do they actually slur? You know, Chris yourself from playing big band charts that almost every note has two articulations on it. Well, but yet big band players, here's, here's a simple example. If I were to give a series of rhythms to a five member saxophone section uh, that were jazz rhythms of, you know, anything from, Gershwin to Wayne Shorter, they would really know how to play them. They would know how to articulate them almost instinctively by the by the way the rhythms are written and the tempo. That's just not true of classical musicians. They would know it if it was Handel or Haydn or or Mozart or Mahler, but they don't yet have enough familiarity with that language. So we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time, especially with the strings, on bowings and, and working out, trying to make them sound as hip as I can as cool as I can, as authentic as I can, so that when the orchestra comes in, it doesn't sag or lose energy or just find, seem a bit limp. The second thing is, is there's no question on earth who's in charge of the fundamental pulse and rhythm, and that's the bass player and the drummer, and it's not yeah. me. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to Martin France. That's where the beat is. You yeah. know, Listen to Brian Blade. That's where the beat is. Or, in fact, Brian plays incredibly freely, so you listen to John, because John Patitucci lays down the rhythm. And as you would do in a Sibelius symphony, you know, you would say to the trumpets, trumpets, I'm listening to the violin, 16th notes, semiquavers here, you've got to be with them. I would say to the orchestra, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm listening to Brian, you know, just play, play with Brian. And it's, in, it's extremely important, especially if you're, you're dealing with a drummer, in particular drummers and bass players who are not used to being with an orchestra. They've probably never been in a room with so many musicians. They're scared little intimidated they don't want to do anything wrong um that it's incredibly important that we as conductors reassure them that the gig will only take off if they're able to do their thing if they're able to do their thing then they will inspire us if they're constantly feeling like like they're being battered down or told to calm down or no 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 no, not like that or it's too loud or it's too this or it's too that generally speaking they're not too loud by the way they're very sophisticated musicians, yeah. then if they're allowed to do their thing, then the whole thing has a sort of virtual spiral and it takes off. Yeah, I'm, you know, I've ran big bands for 18 years or 20 years, whatever. I was in charge of jazz at the Northern. So I speak that language and they know that I'm comfortable with speaking with them and they know that I have immense respect for their artistry and what they do. Mm. And that's a key thing that there's no superiority complex from the classical musicians looking towards the people not of that tradition. Well, you know, in my experience with Abel or Wayne Shorter or Esperanza or Brad Melda or any of the great musicians or some of the pop groups I've worked with, Elvis Costello, whoever, the orchestra musicians are dying to work with them. They love them. You know, they really yeah. respect yeah. them enormously. And they just want to try to be able to do, to, to make them as comfortable so that they can do their thing. I've never met an, an orchestral musician who felt us and them about it. They were incredibly welcoming. But yeah. sometimes it can sound very us and them unintentionally because they just haven't assimilated the language quickly enough. And you have to, that's a key thing, is it has to have enough time. If you don't have enough time to rehearse it, then the orchestra gets frustrated because the music is hard. They know they don't sound good. 
and they're just, and they just think, well, this is just it's just garbage. You know, they, they don't need us at all because we're just making them sound worse than they are. So I've got you at the minute, Clark, in this sort of United Nations role of bringing together these different um, representatives to be able to speak a common language and actually achieve a goal. Um, and the complexity of that, I think, really is, through your modesty, uh, made simple so people understand what they need to do, but they can ultimately be themselves. Absolutely. And the, the orchestra is not, not stupid. They know if they're not sounding good and oh. they expect me to tell them how to sound better. You know, I mean, it's, it's incredibly simple. And I, I remember we were doing, uh, I did the tango prom uh, with Pablo Ziegler's group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember, you know, with the fantastic Britain Symphonia, brilliant players, you know, and you had this wonderful Hector Bandonian player from New York playing these rhythms, really, on the, on the what they look like, and they look incredibly simple, it's quavers and crotchets, you know. But I remember talking to Jackie Shave, wonderful leader of the Britain Symphonia, just saying, Jackie, we just don't sound like them. We had a real discussion about how to make, amongst the best string players in London, play quavers the way that this bandonian player plays it and and that but you need time to do that because otherwise the culture clash diminishes the two worlds whereas it should enhance them both okay so thinking about time completely different but how did music come to be your life where did it start as a little in well i i was very lucky i was brought up in minnesota and uh, my my mother was a piano teacher, a very good piano teacher of little kids. She wasn't an amazing mm. pianist in her own right, but we had people playing the piano in my house all, all my life. I'm not a very good pianist, actually, but uh, in fact, I'm a poor pianist, let's be absolutely honest. But, uh, but I'd, I'd, you know, I, it, music was always part of my world. But also in, in Minnesota, in the, in the town I grew up in, Bloomington, the school district policy was that every single kid, when they were... For the two years in which they were about nine to eleven years old, every single kid in every single school had to learn how to play a musical instrument for two years. And it's very interesting when that becomes the norm. You know, it was so funny. I remember when I got to university at Northwestern in Chicago, and and I met people who didn't play an instrument. I couldn't believe it. Well, here's here's something interesting, Clark. Just to interrupt your flow, um, I was speaking with Dean Massa, who uh, yeah. lives not a million miles away from you in Wigan, um, and he was talking about coming to the saxophone for the first time and he, he was at a grammar school music. he said there was no music department he said music was not part of that school in any way shape or form so he was like 16 17 when he first picked up a horn and you know had to do everything sort of privately and but there was no music curriculum so you're coming from this much richer tradition where you're surprised if someone can't play some, you know, play something. You know, we had we had eight tuba players in my high school, and okay, it was a big high school of there were five hundred people in my year group, but still, you know, it was it was so rich and it was just normal music. Music was something normal people did, and that was so lucky. And you know, we we mustn't turn to politics because it's far more fun to talk about music. But it's 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 wonderful that there are education departments in the orchestras up and down the, the land. But that's no substitute for music in the schools, you know, that they, they can't, you can't expect the music officer of the Halle to service every single school in, in Manchester, let alone Wigan and, and Blackburn and Macclesfield and whatever, you know, yeah. there has to be people with horns and strings and instruments and guitars and, in, you know, actually going in and making music. 
into schools, and there's just no substitute for that. And then you're then a Northwestern, what, majoring on trombone? At what point... You are a trombonist, aren't you? I'm not making that up. In a, in a previous life. And were you, like, getting into jazz, or was it always straight-ahead classical? If you're in a high school that has eight tuba players, we had a fantastic big band at high school. Yeah. My high school big band was great, and I spent all the... A lot of Americans go to summer camps, so I spent all my summers going to music camps and... and playing in big bands and wind bands and orchestras, and that was just my life. And so then I went to, to Northwestern, which was a wonderful place. People who are, are orchestral brass players will know that there was a, a time in the 80s uh, where the Chicago Symphony Orchestra brass section was revered. as, And so that's when I was there. I was there from 80 to 84 when they were recording all the Mahler with Schulte. And it's interesting. I, I loved the sound so much at the time, this this incredibly immediate in-your-face sound. I don't particularly like that so much anymore, but but I loved it at the time. And and amongst the greatest young brass players in the world were there, people who are now in Vienna and Chicago and Philadelphia. And, and I'll be absolutely honest, Chris, I was by no means one of the greatest trombonists, yeah. but I learned a lot about playing the trombone because I had a fantastic student and a fantastic teacher, rather, and I was surrounded by other really, really great players. But it was always a means to an end. I always wanted to be a conductor, and so I took all the conducting classes I possibly could as an undergrad and then miraculously got a fellowship at the Royal Northern which changed my life through a wonderful man called Tim Rennish who for some reason just believed in me and I you know I was just a very lucky boy. I think that's the case so often in life when someone expresses belief in you but the reason that I'm talking to you apart from watching that gig is you reminded me I'd met you in a sort of previous life when I was sort of 13 14 and I was in a trad jazz band and we'd entered I think it was the jazz and education competition you and Digby Fairweather and Don Rendell all these wonderful players came to my school and then took us to the Royal Northern College of Music to play with others and I got to share the stage with some great players you introduced us and Elliot Mason the trombonist followed us and it just went on and on and I was thinking that was just a little moment of belief and it made a huge difference to all of us and you know we went forth and did our various things for you now do you find that sense of responsibility or opportunity more pressing than ever that you see those moments of encouragement it's a great privilege to to have been at the royal northern i've been at the royal northern i think this is my 35th year of teaching there so that's a long Mm -hmm. time I think music, classical music, all music, you know, it's very easy to be critical of people, isn't it? And conducting is a hard thing to do. And I certainly do my absolute darndest to make sure that my that our students at the Northern and Mark, my great colleague, feels the same way. And even Sir Mark Elder feels the same way. Sir right. Mark Elder teaches them and he doesn't make any points at their expense. He tries to give them the confidence to stand up and be their best, you know, and 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 to just stick with it and try and find out what talent you have and believe in yourself and and you know when you work with all these these very wonderful people as I've been so privileged to work with you know and I work a lot with living composers which is something I adore man they have had a lot of cold showers you know there's not right. one highly successful musician who hasn't been kicked in the teeth and had cold showers repeatedly and it's their resilience and their belief and their determination and their talent of course and their hard work that just allows them somehow at some time in their life to, to think to themselves, my God, I've actually, you know, I'm, I'm doing what other people would dream of doing, you know, so such a privilege. And you, you have an undoubtable passion for music. I'm really interested in the crossover in junctions, hence the name of the show, right? You comfortably wear a jazz hat and you've explained your development as a, as a, as a young musician and you are known 
I would say, globally, for being a conductor of classical music, where it's easy for you to, to blend jazz in with it, but it's, you know, you're, you're as comfortable conducting Mahler as you are going to be, I don't know, the, the latest Steve Reich or, or, or some such. But what attracts you, ultimately, what is the goal when you are conducting or you're invited to do something is it the music per se? Is it the audience reaction? Is it for the musicians? Is it everything? What What is it you're trying to achieve? Well, it's a, it's a hell of a lot of fun for a start. <laughs> Conducting an orchestra is unbelievably fun. And, and sometimes I have to remind my students of that. You know, if you're not having a great time, I don't think you can expect anybody else to. And I think that's that's a very interesting thing about classical music is, um, you know, a, a jazz band often looks like they're having an absolutely fantastic time, even when they're in the midst of something dark and intense and crazy post-bop, whatever. And folk groups and crossover groups and world music groups and, and fusion groups and funk groups all look about having a great time. And classical musicians almost always look miserable as hell. <laughs> and I, I think that's that's it. That's an issue. And I, I tend not to look very miserable. I tend to always look like I'm having a good time. I, I think it's, to answer, I think what the question you're, you're really asking is what excites me most. I've always been incredibly excited working with creative people. I adore Mahler and I adore WC and I love teaching Brahms. Probably nobody's going to pay me much to conduct Brahms. But being around composers and creative people has been something I've just, just always loved. They just see the world in a different way than anyone else does. And that has interestingly been my ticket to, to doing interesting things around the world, you know, to doing Louis Andreessen in Melbourne, or hopefully we'll be going back to Japan, or, you know, we should have, Brad and I should have been in, in Vienna and in Prague, and, and, you know, all the stuff I do with Wayne, and that, that has been, you know, primaries of Steve Reich and stuff, that has yeah. been my ticket, my openness to their language, my passion to, to try to communicate what they feel. And interestingly, I, th I then bring that to Mozart and people who obviously I'm never going to meet and try try to get underneath the skin of that music and, and try to work out what the actual intent is, what the narrative is. And I think that's what the best interpreters do. The best interpreters try to try to make the music their own. Well, I try to make sure that transitives, whoever, try to make sure that I'm I'm making their music the way they want it to be heard. And, and if it's good music, of course, then people are going to be thrilled by it and the player's going to love playing it and people are going to love hearing it. it in a sense, it's a kind of simple formula. Amazing. The piece of advice I heard someone giving someone else the other day about a career was saying, what you want to do is find something you're good at and then swim downstream and you'll be happy. Yeah. I think you find something you're good at, but actually looking through your biography of, of, of what you've conducted and who you've worked with, it's been a much more Miles Davisy thing about what next. And I don't expect this to be an easy journey, but I'm going to enjoy going upstream. Let's see what happens. Oh, but that's, that's, that's what motivates you. The excitement, the potential failure is, is incredibly motivating. I'm sure every, every person who stands up and plays a gig, you know, you know, I'm constantly scared of being found out. Yeah. And so when we finish this conversation, I'll be studying my piazzola as if I've, I've never heard a note of it before, even though I've done it, you know. Yeah. So uh, just to be absolutely sure I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I possibly can. One thing that is, is probably worth saying that, you know, I do feel passionately about orchestras and orchestral music and orchestral musicians. And I also feel passionate about people who aren't those musicians. And the thing about the orchestra is 100 years ago, you could guarantee that the best musicians in the world were violinists or pianists well that's just not true anymore right you know? simply not true and if and the orchestras need to engage with the greatest musicians in the world they don't just need to engage with the greatest pianists and violinists in the world 
world. And so if they're going to engage with Tumani Diabat, you know, who's an absolutely great musician, then they're going to have to meet him on his territory and make damn sure that that he want that we are worthy of him and not the other way around. And and those things are incredibly important because Tumani is a great, great, great musician. And yeah. I mean, that's in the front of my mind at the moment because amazingly, a, a project I recorded with him in the LSO and the Norwegian radio in literally 12 years ago is finally coming out on world circuit in about six weeks. I mean, I just assumed it was dead and buried and perhaps, you know, COVID has meant they've been looking at things they've recorded and haven't brought out, but it's going to be amazing. And I think it's incredibly important that orchestras embrace these people and not all of them are interested or want to or are suitable but the ones who are interested and want to and are suitable holy smokes we need to hug them you know firmly with both arms and take them into our house and and wine and dine them royally hey but listen at the point when you're allowed out of your front door again clark freely i hope you get embraced and wined and dined for the great things that you do uh not just for the musicians around manchester but you know globally it's amazing now it's time for the, uh, the classic Watford Jazz Junction podcast question. What three albums, Clark Rundell, would you recommend to our listeners and why? Well, I have to stick with my friends and, and the music I've been listening to a lot over lockdown um, just to get more familiar with their output. So Wayne... I, I mean, and Wayne's back catalogue is enormous, but if people don't know the album Joyrider, they need to listen to it. Okay, so we're locking you in. Wayne Shorter's Joyrider. Also, absolutely have to have to go with Esperanza, and there are so many of her recent... I'd, I'd adore all of her output. I think Emily's Devolution is probably the one I would think is, is such a great introduction to her. Relatively recent, five years old, maybe that, probably. We'll take it. And it's the second uh, Esperanza Spalding recommendation, because we also had 12 Little Spells put forward uh, a few episodes ago. And then another one. I think I think um, my great friend, Brad Melder, who, who has taught me so much and has been so kind to me recently, his... Funny, we were working together the the day he he received the Grammy Award for Gabriel's message. It was so funny. I was able to say to him, you know, does it make you happy? He said, you know, I've been nominated. Something he said, you know, I've been nominated about twenty times, Clark, and I was convinced I wouldn't be pleased, but actually, I'm I'm really delighted. But I love I love the fact that it's overtly political, and I love the politics of it, yeah. and. And he he pulls no punches, and it, but it's also fantastic music. But um, don't listen to it on Spotify uh, random. You have to listen to it all the way through, in its in its in the right order. But it's an incredible statement and a powerful statement from a, a very deep thinking, sincere, honest, brilliant artist. So there we have it. The third recommendation: Brad Maldo's Gabriel's message. Um, now you're not quite done, I'm afraid. Because I need to introduce you to the Watford Jazz Junction house band. So this is a uh, septet, and let me tell you who we've got. So on saxophone, we have Vi Red. On trombone, Mark Nightingale. And on trumpet, uh, an unknown newbie, Dizzy Gillespie. And then hiding there at the back, we've got Duke Ellington, yeah. Ray Brown, our latest bass player, and Jeff Hamilton, the great swing drummer. Uh, and we've also got Leanne Carroll as our secret seventh backup musician on vocals and keys. But, you know, as always, I say I'm a generous soul. So my gift to you, my thank you for you giving me all your wonderful time, is to let you change one of those players. 
I mean, I love Ray Brown, but when you've got John Patitucci in the room, it's just a different kettle of fish. Changing John or changing beautiful Jeff from amazing Brian. I remember I, t- I talked to people about working with that quartet, Wayne's Quartet, and you know, I really understand what Danilo and John do. That they're just unbelievably good at what they do. I have no understanding of what Brian does. It's it's it is it's painting, it's poetry, it's it's narrative. Of course, it's rhythm and it's driving. It's but it's, what he does is miraculous. Would you make me choose? I'm going to let you put in John Patitucci on bass and Brian Blades on them skins. So thank you so much for giving me your time. And hopefully we'll see you in Watford one day, maybe with a baton in hand. Now, if you've liked what you've listened to, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of our fabulous episodes. If you want to know more about the Watford Jazz Junction, check out our website at watfordjazzjunction.com or follow us on some sort of social media outlet. I think I tweet and Facebook-ish. And remember, there ain't no better, there ain't no worse. It's just music. And finally, just to say one more time, thank you, Clark Rundell. Thanks, Chris. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. It's very important that we always have one of the top trad bands in the country, and it's a perennial jazz band from Ipswich. (laughs) 